Recently, there is a lot of buzz around work being done at a state and federal level to help cement direct care as a viable alternative model to our current, some call disastrous healthcare industry. Many states are leading the way on positive reform, and we've discussed that on the show in previous episodes. So now thinking outside the box, now the state legislators have acknowledged direct care and direct primary care. What are some of the other things that can be done to help encourage physicians to enter into direct care or at least innovate on their preferred care delivery? Today is part one of a two-part series called Freeing Physicians, and we'll be discussing a couple ideas that could help physicians leave the overburdened third-party payer system and set out on a new path. From the Freedom HealthWorks Network, this is Healthcare Americana. Today's podcast is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks, a company on a mission to turn healthcare delivery on its head. It works to support all physicians who are interested in direct care, cutting out insurance companies from their practices, and to spread the word of this model to everyone, including employers. For more information on direct care, visit freedomhealthworks.com and by the great people at the Free Market Medical Association. They're connecting true buyers and sellers of healthcare, educating and motivating them to work together based upon mutually beneficial relationship, which is also built on three pillars, price, value, and equality. For more information, visit fmma.org. I'm your host, Christopher Habig, and this is Healthcare Americana. I'm now joined today by Adam Habig, Esquire, President and Co-Founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Adam, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for taking the time to come on and share your experiences with everyone. Great to be back, Chris. Excited. There's a lot of chatter that's been going around the DPC community regarding efforts to open DPC monthly memberships to health savings accounts, or as people call them, HSAs. Uh, HSA eligibility. What's your take on this? It would be wonderful to have that occur and to remove the ambiguity that today surrounds the use of not just HSAs, but FSAs and HRAs and the entire alphabet soup of different savings accounts that could apply to these types of expenditures. Uh, So it would be wonderful. I would caution though that perhaps it's not the most impactful way to encourage the spread of innovations like direct primary care today. Uh, Because in many cases, people are using these types of funds to uh, purchase DPC services. If they're structured correctly, then there's not a problem. But I do support the, uh, the notion that Congress needs to clear up any ambiguity that exists today and make it easier, easier still for people to purchase DPC services. It seems like a lot of effort is being spent on freeing up patients and consumers to purchase DPC. But in our opinion, there's a shortage of DPC physicians nationwide. So how does efforts to get HSAs and let people purchase DPC services and a monthly subscription, monthly membership using those HSAs, how does that impact physicians trying to get into this model? Certainly, the more demand for direct primary care from patients or consumers of any stripe should encourage more supply within the marketplace. And by supply, I mean more physicians that uh, look at DPC and they like it in terms of all the attributes and the, the, the benefits in a professional sense. And the more demand that there is in the marketplace from patients, from purchasers of those services, then ideally, uh, you'd see more physicians moving to supply and, and to satisfy that demand. Not always the case, though, as you and I have found. And that's why I'm not so sure that that in particular is the most effective way to drive the spread of DPC. Uh, I think there are other ways that might have even more impact, frankly. 
Well, since you primed that one up, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about impactful ways that perhaps legislators can actually make a positive difference. This is one man's opinion, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, and, and perhaps um, uh, my, my attorney's hat on for a second here, but one thing that's certainly holding back the spread of DPC and really any sort of other innovative care delivery model among primary care physicians is this tremendous drag imposed by what I'll call the abuse of non-compete agreements by hospitals and other employers of physicians. And the reason I say abuse is that, uh, and the attorneys listening today will enjoy this, a little bit of um, review back to uh, second year law school, but uh, in Indiana, we'll take, for example, non-competes are supposed to serve a particular purpose and um, they are supposed to protect a legitimate business interest and they must be limited in certain details. And, and in our state, it's uh, our home state, it's geography, it's, it's duration, and it's the scope of activity that's prohibited. And I, I'm using Indiana, Indiana as an example because these do vary state to state, but for the most part, they follow certain guidelines. And non-competes are, are a great thing when they're used properly. And in many cases, that means to protect things like trade secrets or valuable customer lists. When it comes to physicians, though, they've grown to be used for a different reason, and that's really to handcuff physicians to a particular employer. And, and that's not good. And, and, and that's why I say that I think there are other ways that, that um, legislatively or uh, you know, from a policy standpoint, we can move the ball forward on expanding DPC. Well, here's one of them, because there are many physicians who would look at this movement and say, I want to be a part of that. I'd like to really run that up the flagpole and see if that works for me. But for this agreement that I'm signed to, and we've seen some that are so egregious, uh, you know, something like a 10-year a employment contract uh, with a two-year prohibition following termination, anywhere within 25 miles, no practice of medicine, regardless of the type or whether it's actually competitive with the hospital, and a, a gag order really against even announcing the opening of a new practice. So, I mean, those are the kinds of egregious provisions that many states are taking measures to prohibit. And I think, frankly, that if more states would do things like that, you could see a greater impact on the proliferation of innovation like direct primary care. And I know there's probably some physicians listening out there who say, well, wait a minute, employed primary care is not the same type of model as what my direct primary care practice is going to be. How would this non-compete even apply to me? Great question, and, and I'd love to see that argued in court that it does. But here's the problem. In order to win that argument, you've got to go up against your hospital employer, and there are legions of attorneys who have deep pockets and are you know, ready to go to the mat to protect this, this uh, what I would call a, a perception that is um, you know, really having a chilling effect on physicians and preventing them from um, innovating. And, and it's not simply direct primary care, although that's obviously our focus. But think about this. If you um, read some of these, and most, most non-compete covenants are written very broadly, that they, they prohibit the practice of medicine or the provision of primary care services. And if you think about the different ways that, that care is being delivered today, direct primary care is one, one manner. And, and that's certainly not competitive with your local hospital, the way that they're providing primary care. But think about a doctor who says, well, I want to uh, leave the hospital and perhaps I just want to provide telemedicine services. Well, that's not competitive with the hospital. What about some doctor who just wants to make house calls? Again, these things are not competitive, but to win that argument, you got to go to court and you got to put up with uh, years of litigation 
to overcome the hospital's attorneys, which is a pretty tall order if I'm a solo physician saying, hey, I went out, I'm going to go challenge this non-compete. And then you get a nice little worded letter from a fleet of attorneys and you might think twice about that. And that's exactly what happens. And that's why you don't see more physicians challenge these things because the chilling effect, like I said, that they have in in terms of just the heavy lift, going to the mat with a large hospital with a fleet of attorneys and they can outspend you all day long, which is the reason to bring this back to the legislative and policy realm that many states now have stepped in and said that those remedies are not reasonable that your ordinary physician cannot avail himself or herself of the normal you know, court-type solution to this. So they step in with legislative solutions. And that's been the trend nationwide. And uh, you've seen you know, different states react in different ways to this abuse. And I think the universal recognition is that the trend nationwide is towards either prohibiting or curtailing these non-competes when it comes to physicians and really all, all care providers because they do run contrary to public policy. And you'll have some states, um, for instance, I mean, California, Oklahoma, North Dakota, simply they've banned all non-competes and they have uh, across all industries. And that is not the case for most states. Many of them, though, in, in recent times, I'm thinking of Massachusetts or Colorado, you know, have focused non-compete prohibitions simply on the medical space, so on, on physicians and other providers of care. Still, other states have even decided that they'll allow these non-competes, but they're going to draw them to be more reasonable, to be more narrow. And so you brought up the, the question earlier, well, what about the doctor who is in no way, shape, or form competing with a hospital? Well, these states have taken measures to, to really level the playing field a bit and make sure that, that that physician is not driven out of business or prevented from innovating simply by a non-compete agreement that is not competitive, not protecting competitive interest. So is that the type of non-compete laws that you're seeing written out there? Or is there such variation that it's hard to get a consensus of where these states are going? Well, the consensus is clear. It's moving to really tighten the the non-compete restrictions that can be imposed in what really is an unequal bargaining position when you have a, a hospital essentially handing a contract to a physician and, and sign or else type thing, which in, in some way physicians are at fault for not reading their contracts carefully. Um, the AMA has a, a very clear position on this and they say that the imposition of a non-compete clause or any other restrictive covenant, it should not be mandatory by any sort of an employer onto you know a physician, an employment situation. Um, but many times physicians are, are either they believe that they can't affect that or they have no bargaining power or any pushback is going to be looked at um, adversely by the hospital. And so they acquiesce to these clauses. And once it's in writing, it's, it's tough to undo, as I mentioned, because it does involve going to court, unless you happen to be in one of these, one of these states that is moving legislatively now to uh, really protect physicians a little better from the abuse of those non-competes. So let me ask this kind of contrarian, is legislation even needed or is this just another law that gets in the way of a private contract? Well, that's, that's the counter argument. You've got two private parties that are contracting and so keep the government out of it, right? And, and that's okay. Um, it's, it's a valid counter argument. But at the end of the day, you look at the bargaining position between these two parties. And if you look at it 
um, from a, a practical standpoint and saying, is the system working like it should? And by that, I mean, when one side is um, driving a bargain that the other side lacks the power later to even challenge or to even contest, which is what happens in many cases. Um, you see uh, hospitals that enact punitive measures against physicians who try to uh, exit and, and simply bring up this notion that they might be terminating and, and leaving. And, and um, that's not the way that things should work. And I, I would say that that's not the way the law protects private interaction and private contracting is not to create these situations almost in a, in a mafia type uh, perception where you know one side is terrified to even contest a uh, so-called freely negotiated contract. Anytime you're bringing in mafia references, it <laughs> tends to give you some some uh, imagery of an unfair negotiation. Uh, perhaps both sides are not equal in this. Well, if you're a physician out there listening and you've crossed swords with your hospital employer over a non-compete, I think you would find that an apt analogy. So let's say all 50 states pass something that, that prohibits uh, abusive non-competes, as we'll call them. What type of impact can these type of arrangements or this type of legislation have on physicians, patients, and other stakeholders within direct care? You see the expansion of alternatives for all parties involved, which in my mind is always a good thing. When patients have more choice within their community and they can either choose to patronize the traditional hospital system with their clinics or to go and, and see if they like a direct primary care physician more and get better value there, that's a good thing because they can then vote with their dollars and vote with their feet. Physicians are the same way. When physicians in a community can, can choose either the, I guess, security of being employed by a hospital with the downside that comes with that too, uh, but uh, many, many opt to, to, to stay in, in uh, employed practice. But it does give those who would seek something else, something perhaps more fulfilling on a professional level, more satisfying to their pure practice instinct to try out something else. And this is not just about direct primary care. It would certainly unlock, we think, a lot of demand that is, that is pent up among physicians to uh, move into this new model. But it is also about unlocking any sort of innovation that can be um, driven into you know, the care delivery equation. And we mentioned a couple earlier, will that help expand telehealth? Will that help expand things like house calls and um, different types of alternative care delivery? I, I think that by giving uh, physicians the freedom to exit a system that may not be working for them, um, you are going to help bolster the ranks of our physicians uh, that either stay in practice, that avoid burnout, that try different models. And that's going to bring more choice to consumers. And in the end, innovation will drive down cost in healthcare, which is sorely needed. Now, I think the normal reaction to having non-competes limited would be the hospital systems would be absolutely, totally, 100% against it. Is that completely true in your viewpoint? It's actually not. And I've spoken with hospital administrators who, especially when you look at the fact that not all hospitals are created equal, smaller hospitals often have a hard time uh, recruiting physicians when they're needed, uh, simply because um, these non-competes can be so egregious and so wide-ranging that um, uh, many times you know, you'll see an imbalance even among hospitals themselves. But yet, for the most part, I think what the hospitals you know, would seek to avoid is creating an arms race where a physician could hop across the street 
join the rival hospital for a higher salary or higher comp, and then do the same thing a year later, hop back to the original, and create some kind of a bidding uh, war that drives up the cost of their personnel. And that's a valid concern. And, and that's, again, one reason why non-competes are used. But in that case, there's direct competition between those two entities. And I think what we're talking about is you know, just protecting situations where there is not truly competition and disallowing the use of these non-competes uh, for another purpose, which is simply to lock up you know, expensive and vital personnel. So with all the momentum that you're seeing across states that have these type of non-compete limitations, uh, where does it go from here? Well, I think there is a burgeoning movement among the states to continue to either restrict or limit these non-competes. I don't know that there has been as much of a concerted effort uh, at the policy level to drive that change. I'd, I'd love to see that. And, and certainly, we've been in touch with different groups that are seeing the benefits of trying to encourage states one by one to adopt these types of measures. It always helps when you can point to a number of other states and say, see what they're doing, see what those guys are doing, and, and it's working. That's becoming the case. It's becoming easier to go and, and, and talk to legislators and say, look, this is having an impact in your neighboring state. Why don't you folks look at doing this? Um, show me the downside. And if the downside is, well, the hospital lobby is unhappy, well, that's not always... Um, determinative. But I think keep pushing, talk to your legislators. If, if you need you know, the evidence and, and some of the, the clear indications that uh, making something as, as esoteric as a legal clarification of what this principle means, the, the idea of a non-compete in the medical realm, talk to us. I'd be happy to, to, to communicate directly with anyone and, and talk about efforts that we've made and that we're seeing uh, made around the country to uh, help free doctors and help liberate them from a lot of these non-competes that they feel trapped behind. Well, Adam, thanks for sharing your expertise and your views on these, uh, this critical issue about how we get more doctors into direct primary care and into the direct care industry. You're going to be back again on the next episode to share another brilliant idea with us. So hope uh, all our listeners out there stay tuned and stay excited for that one uh, when that episode comes out. But uh, thanks for taking the time to join us uh, this evening. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Healthcare Americana. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podchaser, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends and colleagues to download and listen to all Healthcare Americana shows at healthcareamericana.com. This episode was produced by iPodcast Pro. Capture your story, iPodcastPro.com.